God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. We will suffer in this lifetime. It is for certain. The scripture, the, the authors of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote, we will suffer. Jesus himself said, you will experience trials and tribulations. There's a vein of theology out there that says, nope, that's not what God has for you. If you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith, life will be good. Life will be easy. That is not a biblical understanding of trials and suffering. When you face trials. God also speaks to our suffering. In James chapter 1, he gave us a promise. Those trials will lead you to maturity, to maturity in Christ, if you persevere in that trial with endurance. We get another promise today. James comes back to the topic of suffering as he closes his book. We have this week and next week, we're done with James. We get a fuller picture of what is causing the suffering of James's audience. Rich, wealthy, non-Christian landowners were oppressing their poor Christian day laborers. Today, James confronts these wealthy evildoers and gives those who may experience suffering, oppression, and persecution at the hands of others a second promise regarding trials and a pattern for living in light of them. Turn to James chapter 5. Please have it in front of you. Open up the Bible as we work through it. I guarantee this experience will be more fruitful for you if you have God's Word in front of you. And you read God's Word and you interact with it yourself. James 5.1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's a shriek in terror. You rich people, because the day of judgment is coming. Johnny Cash said, the man's coming around and he's going to deal with, with evildoers. Hear the pipers piping. <laughs> I love Johnny Cash, man. Are these miseries coming because of their wealth? Is wealth something that God is absolutely against? The answer is no. Wealth is just dangerous. We worship it instead of God, and we're tempted to use it in ways that dishonor God when we have a lot of it. Scripture says there's pitfalls from pursuing wealth and trying to be rich. This entire section is James confronting the riches' misuse of their wealth, not the fact that they are wealthy. Let's look at verses two and three. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse three really summarizes this indictment of the rich. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. He says, you are fat. You're fat. Your storehouses are fat. Your pantry is fat. Your closet is fat, full of Gucci and Prada and things that you'll, you'll never touch or wear while others languish with maybe just one outfit. Your wallet's fat. And you've stored up an obscene amount of, of, of everything. You have so much that it sits there 
and it's become rotten, corroded, and moth-eaten. You have laid up and hoarded wealth in these last days. Last days is a reference to the coming of Jesus. Jesus will come at some point in salvation history and judge. And he will judge the wicked. And it will be unimaginable time of, of grief for the wealthy because the food that rots instead of relieves hunger, the clothes that languish in their closet instead of being used to warm another, and the money that is rusted instead of relieving the hardship of others will serve as evidence. Exhibit A, B, and C against you on the day of judgment. Hoarding. They were hoarding. It's not all James addresses here. Look at verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The wages are crying out. And the cries of the harvesters, the harvesters are crying out, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They also cheat their workers out of their wages. Douglas Moo, a professor and academic, gives us the context of the situation. He says, at this time in history, only a small amount of wealthy people owned land. And so the small hoarding, the small holdings of farmers were assimilated into these large estates. And, and these farmers were forced to earn a living by hiring themselves out to the rich and wealthy landlords. And these people didn't have a savings account. They didn't have a Roth IRA. They didn't have insurance. They were living paycheck to paycheck. So to rob them of their wages would jeopardize their very lives. And so the stolen wages, they cry out, we're, we're not where we belong. We're not in the hands of, of those who earned us. The people cry out, and who hears them? The, the Lord of hosts. A host is not a term that we fully understand. It's like the Lord of party planners. Like, no, hosts is armies. The Lord of angel armies. So the Lord who has all of the powers of heaven behind him and in his hands, that is the God who hears your cries. That is the God who can do something about it. We have another indictment, 5-5. Five, five. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The wealthy they live in opulence and their self-indulgence. This is hedonism. What do you do when you have enough money to, to try to fulfill every woman desire that you, you have? You, you just you jump in headfirst into sin. These people are likened to a cow at a trough just fattening itself. Fattening itself while, while others starve, ignorant that they're fattening themselves for the slaughter. God's judgment. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You've condemned and murdered the believer. The word condemned suggests the wealthy landowners were using the court to deprive the poor of their wages and lands. You have murdered. More than likely, James can be borrowing from the Jewish wisdom tradition like Sirach who says to take away a neighbor's living in this day and age, is to murder them. To deprive an employee of, a, of his wages 
is to shed blood. Or he could just simply mean literal murder. Wealthy, well for your hoarding, fraud, self-indulgence, and oppression. For those things that put you in the path of condemnation. Now, more than likely, James is using a literary device called an apostrophe. It's not the, the little thing here, but he's addressing an imaginary opponent. More than likely, these wealthy people were not present when James's letter was read to, to, his, to his hearers. More than likely, they're not there. And so you have James really talking about the, the rich and the wealthy and the evil that they do in their judgment for, for one of two reasons. And the first is, is to warn us against a desire, envy, and covetousness for wealth. Hoarding is, is sinful. It is. Are your closets, garages, basements, overflowing with unused items that could either directly or indirectly benefit others? How many of us hoard our wealth? God tells us to say it. God does tell us to say it, you know, for that rainy day. But we also need to hold that with, with an open hand. Some of us go beyond saving into hoarding, and I want to get to a point in life where I really don't have to rely on God. If I have enough money, I don't have to rely on God. And I'm going to save for that rainy day. Well, you may not live to see that rainy day, number one. Then that money will be absolutely worthless. Number two, it may be somebody else's rainy day. And you've been called by God to help the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan. We're to be against hoarding. We're to be against overindulgence. I mean, do, do, do we gorge ourselves and, and to the point where we're throwing away so much food while others starve? Is that a normal life pattern for us, do, do we have so much that our, that our tables overflow while, while others go hungry? Are, are we more concerned about, about pleasuring every, every desire that we have uh, to the point that we're, we're, we're excluding uh, loving and serving and helping others? Fraud. Fraud is sinful. Exploitation is sinful. Do we support organizations that defraud workers and take advantage of, of the vulnerable. I mean, this section really forces us to look in the mirror, especially as Western Christians today. But this section also gives comfort to the oppressed who cry out. A second promise is made here about suffering, specifically when it comes from the hands of others. God sees it all. When you suffer and cry out, God hears your voice and he will make everything right in due time. Look at verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In the face of oppression, be patient until the Lord comes. Patient here has the idea of long suffering. Don't give up. I know you're suffering. Don't 
give up. Don't turn away from Jesus. Persevere. Keep going. Keep going. But also in this command is to refrain from violent vengeance seeking. James doesn't say, you know, pick up your sword and go to war with these rich yuppies. You can take them. Restrain yourself from from hasty retaliation when wronged. When wronged, when persecuted, when when treated unfairly, what's your normal response? Like, what's your go-to? My flesh is to say, get them. (laughs) I, I I love the old eye for an eye thing, man. You punch me in my eye, hit me in my tooth, I'm gonna punch you in your face and knock out your tooth. I love that way of doing things. Here's the problem, though. With seeking retribution and vengeance, we, we, we don't make good judges. We often go above and beyond what needs to be done. And so we always want to get in. If, if we're hurt and we're wrong, we always want to get in that last punch. And we always want it to be the most powerful punch. Jesus says, let me be the person who deals with the wicked. Let me be the person who mediates justice. Be patient. Stay faithful. Don't repay evil with evil, for God is coming and he will deal with the wicked with absolute justice and equity. Now, now when's he coming? I don't know. I remember hearing of Harold Camping in seminary. Do you guys remember old Harold Camping? He predicted that the world was going to end while I was in seminary, May 21st, 2011. He said, Jesus is going to come back and 97% of the world is doomed. They're going to be doomed on that day. And 3% will be taken up with God and they will go to heaven. He spent a hundred million dollars, you know, propagating this message. I think he had a bus that said the world's going to end on May 21st. I went to bed peacefully on May 21st. And I woke up with life, with vigor on May 22nd. Because no one knows. But, but here's the deal. It can happen at any minute. Any minute. It's imminent. Scripture indicates that it could be at any moment. It's like a plane. Jesus' return is like a plane circling the runway. It's in a holding pattern. It's ready to land at at any moment. Be patient. Be ready. Don't seek vengeance because Jesus is going to come back at any moment. And he's coming to judge. Romans 12, 17 through 19 aligns well with this. Paul says, repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Look at the rest of verse seven in James. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. We wait for Jesus to come as the farmer waits for rain, patiently. Doesn't mean we just sit back. The farmer had work to do. He prepared the land. There's things for us to do. 
We're to further the gospel. We're to make disciples. We're to love people and serve people. And he tells us to fortify our hearts as we wait for Jesus to come. We ask the Holy Spirit to establish our hearts and fortify our faith through worship. The word, fellowship, service, as we wait for Jesus to return. Be patient. If you've been wronged in this congregation, be patient. Be patient. Jesus will settle all accounts. There will be a day when he makes all things right. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It says, don't grumble with each other. Why were they grumbling with one another? Because they're in a pressure cooker of hardship. What happens when there's external pressure? It always creates internal division. I know in your marriage, you have spoken to your spouse poorly, even though they may not be the reason you're frustrated or angry. We tend to take out our external pressures on people we love. We, we, we misdirect them. Hardship out there creates pressure in here. And that pressure can lead us to blame one another, picket one another, and accuse one another. James calls for patience with one another. This is not a time for infighting, James says. We should be united. We should be united. We're to be patient. We're to be united, encouraging one another, carrying one another's burdens lest we incur judgment ourselves. Now, we get all excited that Jesus is going to come back and judge the wicked, uh, but we also need to realize that Jesus is going to come back and judge believers, people who follow Jesus. And so I'm always like, what do I want to be doing when that happens? What do I want to be in the midst of doing when that happens? What do I want the, the past five years to look like in my life leading up to that point? We tend to not think about Jesus is coming in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, 19th century pastor Alexander McLaren notes, the primitive church, though, thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were not looking, were, were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were waiting not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. We live as though judgment is far off. Man, it's been 2,000 years, Larry. Come on. 2,000 years is, is, is it's like, a, like a drop of, of time uh, to God. It's 2,000 years. He, he's at the door. Here's an encouragement. Live life as to not be taken off guard when Jesus returns. Live life as to, to not be taken off guard or caught off guard by the Lord's return. Look at verse 10. As an example of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Our example, the prophets who suffered because they were faithful. Jeremiah, thrown into a cistern. Micaiah, slapped around, thrown into prison. And with patience, these men did not respond in inappropriate ways. They're also our example for their patience was anything but passive. Sometimes we think patience is just, just letting ourselves get, get run over, pushed over. What did the prophets do? Prophets spoke out. They made clear 
God's displeasure with evildoers and oppressors inside and outside of Israel and the coming judgment that was coming against them. They did not take on God's role as a violent avenger. They fought injustice and oppression and evil by, by speaking up. So in the face of oppression, we should be patient, yeah, united, yes. But in this way, we're, we're also to be prophetic. We're to speak out. This isn't right. This is not a quiet, steamrolled acceptance of oppression or abuse. It's utilizing wise, God-honoring speech to call out that which God is against. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and, and merciful. In chapter 1, again, James said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who, who love him. While Job wrestled with God's justice, and he was anything but quiet, he never gave up or cursed God. He remained steadfast, so God showered him with mercy and compassion. God will shower with mercy and compassion to those who remain patiently steadfast. <clears throat> Finally, we get to verse 12. But of all my, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's a weird you know, sort of proverb to put at the end of this passage. How does this fit? What I believe James is doing here is warning us against using oaths to satisfy lenders, knowing that payment to those lenders would be impossible. So if you're a day laborer and your wages are being withheld, how would you feed your family? You'd probably take out a loan. So James is saying, you know, don't invoke the name of God. <laughs> don't swear by heaven or by earth when you maybe have no ability to pay back that loan. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. In essence, he's telling them, do not lose your integrity when dealing with oppression. Trouble, trials are inevitable in this broken world. Job himself declared, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards and others will often be responsible for that trouble. James has told us how we are to deal with such suffering. God's people, when faith with oppression and justice or persecution are called to be patient, not prone to vengeful retribution, for that's, that's God's lane. We are to exercise that patience in our community, preserving unity when the pressures we face are all too real. Yet we are not to be passive. We must in a way that doesn't bring shame to Christ, speak up and denounce injustice and evil. In reality, you want to sum all this up? He's calling us to be like Jesus. Respond to oppression, persecution, and suffering like Jesus would. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, For to this you've been called, which is suffering. You've been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile 
in return when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. The God man took on flesh for our sake, who though sinless was was falsely accused, beaten and crucified for our sins. Yet he did not meet evil with evil. He trusted himself to the judge who judges justly. We are to face trials as Christ did. And yet we can only do that with, with Christ's spirit living in us. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for our behalf. When that happens, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who enables us to, to live life as, as Jesus did. Not perfectly, but like Jesus. That means we can handle persecution, suffering, and oppression in ways that Jesus did. How are you going to handle when life is unfair? I'm going to tell you, life is unfair. I don't even know if I concept of fair. It's a whole another concept to talk about. Bad things are going to happen to you. And oftentimes you're going to suffer because of the sin of others. How are you going to respond? I mean, Jesus essentially said, they persecute me, and guess what? They're going to persecute you. They speak ill of me, guess what? They're going to speak ill of you. If they oppress me, guess what? They're going to oppress you. How are you going to respond? How do you normally respond? I mean, in this day and age, it's it's not super uncommon to to get passed up for a promotion because you're a believer. How would you respond to that? You can speak up. I don't think James would be against that. You You can find representation and deal with it lawfully. But if you're like, I want to burn this company to the ground and make them all suffer, you may need to come back to James 5. How will you handle it when people speak ill of you? This is is probably more common. When people misrepresent you or accuse you of something you didn't do or talk behind your back. Man, as a pastor, this is par for the course. Guys, there's been so many times in my life where I've had people talk behind my back and I hear about it, I'm like, that just isn't true. And you know what I want to do? I want to fight. Being honest. There are more than, uh, more than once I've said to my, I just wish we had an octagon. Let's set up an octagon right outside church and just deal with some of these issues. Just, and, hey, when it's done, it's done, man. Uh, we, it's, we'll just move on from, from that point. I want to, it's just in my flesh, I want to enact vengeance. I want to get at people who've gotten at me, who've who've chipped away at my my credentials or at my honor, who've who've not respected me, who've painted a bad picture of who I am. I want to address that. And, And here's the crazy part. Not all the time. Sometimes I go in like a wild animal and cause a lot more destruction. But there have been times in my life when, I, when I've had those, literally had those, I want to fight somebody. I want to fight them right now. Where, where God has, has whispered to me, let it go. Say nothing. 
Put it down. Put it down. Let me deal with it in due time. And I've been able to, to walk away. Doesn't happen all the time. But that's, that's patience that comes from knowing that our God is just. Our God is righteous. And when we're wronged, we don't need to retaliate in violent, vengeful ways because he will deal with those people in due time. We will suffer persecution, oppression, and trials. But here's the reality, and we're just going to be honest. You're not going to experience the type of oppression that James's readers have faced. You just could change, maybe, in this country, but more than likely in our lifetime, you're not going to face this type of oppression. But there are millions of Christians around the world who do. Right now, last Sunday, was the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. This message would have been fit very perfectly, so we're just, we're just pushing it back a week. I think God will still hear our prayers. According to Open Doors World Watch List, one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution because of their faith. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. So as we go home and, you know, we watch the games today, it's sobering to think that believers in Afghanistan are either running or hiding because the Taliban is, is literally hunting them down. They have a list of names and they're hunting them like wild animals. In North Korea, an estimated 50,000 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned. India, China, Nigeria. James' words here are for such people. That they would have comfort. That they would have a way forward, living in light of that suffering. In Ephesians 6.18, we are told to be alert, and to keep on praying for all of God's children. And so we're, we're going to adopt November 13th, today, as the International Day of Prayer at Central Bible Church for the persecuted church. And so what I would like to do is I'd like to pray. It's the beauty about being in a small church. And I'd like to pray out loud just for a few minutes about these things. I want to pray for patience and light of God's return for these believers, for unity, that they would love each other well and serve each other well, that God would teach persecuted Christians what to say and that they will confidently declare the gospel, even in the face of, of death. Pray for their protection. Please pray for their protection. Pray for the persecutors that they will find Christ. And pray that God would provide for the physical needs of of persecuted Christians around the world while they suffer under oppressive regimes that are hostile to believers. 